Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. This week we are joined by Brooke Binkowski, who is the managing editor of truthorfiction.com. Thanks for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for pronouncing my name right. I guess just to begin with, uh, what is truthorfiction.com? We're a counter-disinformation and debunking site. We generally focus on debunking harmful disinformation narratives that go on around the internet and work their way into policy almost immediately. Sometimes we like to do urban myths and, and folklore. We, we actually came at this through folklore uh, mentality. We started out doing sort of like addressing these these legends these urban legends as folklore as a form of folklore but over time they became you know more and more tainted and so we became more and more of a counter disinformation narrative site so we'll do mostly what we try to do is this the kind of stuff that goes viral that has a harmful germ of rhetoric or uh, weaponized propaganda in it and debunk that. Sometimes we'll do rundowns of narratives that are going on. And sometimes I just get mad and type something up. <laughs> like, you know, here's how you fight this. We have to fight this. Please fight this. And then I don't know, hopefully somebody reads it somewhere. So that's what we do. You came to the world of disinformation reporting from uh, an immigration beat. Could you tell, tell us a little bit about how uh, borders and ideas about borders interact with disinformation? Oh, man, this has been such a thing. Certainly, of course. First of all, I didn't realize when I first got into counter disinfo and debunking that it was going to end up being so much about the border. I was a border reporter at the U.S.-Mexico border for, for many years. And before that, I was a Southern California area reporter for some L.A.-based news organizations and so on. I did breaking news, spot news, you know, just the kind of stuff like when something blows up, they send the reporter out. That's, that was I was that reporter for many years. And I loved it. You know, I, I loved being on the scene of, 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 of history as it was happening. But eventually, over time, and, you know, getting fired a lot, <laughs> uh, I'm very good at that. I, uh, and that's because I generally am, you know, I, I'm very suspicious of anybody in authority, which also includes my own management, right? So when I was younger, I was always like unionizing newsrooms and telling off my bosses and getting myself fired. And uh, I would do it all over again. Uh, the only reason that's not happening now is because now I'm, now I'm the management. Anyway, so all this was happening. And because of my own life, I've always tracked white supremacists and Nazis for my own safety, right? And I can get into that if you're interested, but like, just 
just know that it's been for my own safety. It was like sort of this private hobby that I had that everybody thought I was weird for doing, but I always tracked these Nazi groups and, and so on. Where I live, where I'm from, in the San Diego, and San Diego is a very white supremacist heavy region for historical reasons. And the whole region seems to be in total denial about this. So again, I had this very odd thing, but I started noticing that these, these, these Nazis that I was tracking would show up at certain stories. They were showing up at the border a lot. And I noticed this as I was doing my, I, I was beginning to do this border work, this immigration work. And I, I was doing it because nobody, really nobody was at the border doing it. And I thought it was a very interesting region. And I was curious as to why nobody was there except for the white supremacists. And so I started like digging into this. This is, this is very early on in my career as a border reporter. And I kept finding these weird stories that everybody seemed to believe about the border that were like demonstrably not true. These, these stories about like, you know, terrorists showing up and, you know, bringing their, their prayer rugs. And, and we were all in just imminent danger of these terrorists with their prayer rugs, which, by the way, is, you know, BS, anti-Muslim, Islamophobic nonsense, right? So there's, there's all these layers of lies going on, that, that there are terrorists coming to the border, that they are terrorists because they are Muslim, that there are Muslims coming to the border. They're, they're, and by the way, there are some people who are Muslim who do come to the border to ask for uh, asylum, but that's not, it's not like they're coming here to, to the United States to do anything like these white supremacists say they're doing. So I, I kept hearing these narratives. People seem to actually believe this. And so I decided to turn myself into like the border whisperer and try to, to convince Americans in particular, not just Americans, but mostly, you know, white Americans to, I would try to convince them to pay attention to what was happening at the border. Cause I was very alarmed, you know, by this by these lies, by this, these narratives. It hadn't occurred to me at this point. And this was probably, I started, I started really at the border in earnest in probably 2008. At that point, I, it wouldn't even have occurred to me to call it disinformation. It was just these weird stories that everybody believed. And, and then we also had this crazy surveillance going on at the border. We still do. I mean, it hasn't gotten any better. It's gotten way worse. But I, I kept seeing it pick up. You know, we've got, we have like these streetlights with cameras in them that, that send all this crazy data back to law enforcement in San Diego. We've got like these really intrusive things that you have to do in order to get a, a, a pass to travel back and forth across the U.S.-Mexico border. You know, you have to be like all these things. So this is all going on. I can't get any kind of traction. Nobody cares about my stories. By now, by the way, after getting fired several times, I've gone fully freelance, which which meant I was making a lot less money, but I was way happier, right? So I'm freelancing at the border. Anytime there's some kind of big story, I try to sell it. You know, I'm doing this like multimedia stuff. And every year I'm making less and less money. So finally in 2014, I was like, I have got to get a full-time job again. This is going to be such a bummer, but I'm going to look for management jobs now. So I found this place, this site. Uh, I mean, I, I looked for like a year, right? Nobody wanted to hire me because I was overqualified, which is just the worst thing ever. And so finally a place thought that I was interesting enough, liked my, my stuff at the border, liked the stuff I was doing, and um, hired me as management. They hired me as the managing editor. That was how I ended up working at Snopes. So Snopes, was, it was a myth-busting site at the time. This was when they hired me, it was 2015. And they were just trying to get into politics. And I was like, oh, this is great. You know, we can knock down all these weird stories that show up around elections. I had no idea what I was getting into. And then I, I worked something out with them where, you know, I, I said, I can do, I can still do my border reporting as long as I'm doing this editing as well. So I can just sort of incorporate one with the other. I, I thought it was the most perfect deal because I had this quote, fun job at Snopes. And then I could still support my border reporting. And then 2016 happened and my plans just went all to pieces. And I, I, I started, well, first, 
first of all, I noticed right away that there was a lot of disinfo, a lot of lies about immigrants that for, first, the first thing I noticed was Brexit. So Brexit was using all these narratives, these strange narratives that I had first seen at the US-Mexico border, including some of the, the photos, including some of the actual stories that I'd been told or heard or whatever. They were using those as part of the, the Brexit deal. And I was like, okay, well, this is obviously just complete lies because, you know, it, I, I mean, I debunked this myself at the border. Like, this is just not true. This is simply a lie. So we started debunking those stories and it kept snowballing. And, and finally, by 2018, with a family separation, my God, it became so clear that that what I was seeing at the border had always been disinformation, that it was part of a larger global disinformation campaign that was being used to attack immigrants migrants, asylum seekers, and refugees all over the place, that it was the same people at the border, the same stories. It was the same everything. And then I started to think, oh boy, we are in big freaking trouble. So that's kind of how that it all came together and why I started to become very strident about the people around these disinfo narratives and about the border and why not just Americans, but the whole world now needs to pay attention to what's happening around the world at borders. The surveillance the you know invasions of privacy, the, the the lack of human rights, the lack of accountability, all of that is coming for all of us if we're not careful. So uh, you know that's my warning because I am I have now become by the way I used to be a real fun party girl. I have gone from being a real fun party girl to being somebody who's never invited to parties, which is fine because you know we're in a pandemic. But even well before that, because I just brought everybody down. I get a couple drinks in me, I'd be like, you know, we're all going down together, right? <laughs> so you know, sorry about that. But yeah, so that's that's how it started. I mean, it all just sort of, it found me, you know, it's like, there's a, a lot of people around here whose families have been in this region for, for generations, you know, and now they're treated like they're foreigner, you know, they, they're treated like foreigners, they'll, they'll say, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. And I, I, I not to appropriate that, because it's not my family's history. But, you know, I didn't, I, I tried to leave the border, but the border just kept on coming for me. And it still is, you know, and now we're in this awful situation where those same exact people, this same network of lobbyists and, and dark money politician, you know, loving politicians and, you know, just itinerant. I'm trying not to swear. It's really hard. Jerks. All of these people now are going after abortion rights in the United States because they're eugenicists, of course. So it's the same topic, same people. But anyway, I can get into that. <laughs> I'm trying not to rant as well. And I think I just did. But that's kind of how it happened. Um, and, and before that, I mean, I was a Southern California reporter. And then I li lived in and reported in Anchorage, Alaska, which, you know, has its own immigration and refugee issues and its own disinformation campaigns and its own racism to contend with. But it's all part of the same story. Like I just kind of always have covered the same story, not on purpose. It just happened that way. Quick fact check, uh, Brooke. Um, did Mexico ever end up paying for Trump's Great Great Wall? <laughs> no. And I'm also irritated now that they have been forced to pay for American border security and surveillance. Did you see that story today? They're now paying for Biden's wall. That, that's some great news. Thanks for that, Brooke. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you've, you've been involved in fact checking for a few years. Do you think things have changed during the course of those years and have things gotten worse? 
way worse. Absolutely worse. They're so bad. Oh my God. Yeah. So first of all, we are still having the same stupid conversations that we had in 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2020 and 2021. Like I'm so tired of these conversations. People are talking about whether we should have apps, whether we should teach fact checking in schools, whether we should this. Yeah. That's going to work out real well in schools when we've got these maniacs showing up at school board meetings, threatening to go after people, you know, and maniacs actually showing up at schools with guns. Like this is not going to work. Not as as things are right now. We we have people talking about like, I don't know, they're just putting forward all these ridiculous things. Fact checking has been completely appropriated in the United States and elsewhere. So now I don't, I, there's this, today I'm very angry because a bunch of fact checkers decided to fact check with, with no, there was no point to it other than it just didn't feel real to them. They decided to fact check this awful story about a 10 year old ha- needing an abortion. So they, they, come out and they're like, well, this is a one source story. Now I'm just, I don't think this is true. And of course it comes out almost immediately afterward that this suspect has been arrested and so on. So they just went and, you know, just like help destroy a 10 year old, further destroy a 10 year old's life because they just didn't think it felt right. This is what, where we're at right now. It's, it's almost exactly the same as it was in 2016, only it's worse. And, you know, there are some really good, really solid journalists who are working in this industry, who are, are, sorry, working in this particular field and on this particular topic. And I don't mean to come down on them because they're doing really great work. But as far as an industry goes, it's been completely co-opted. Facebook took it over. It's been destroyed. I mean, they've got like Facebook fact checkers that consist of like these far right blogs, like the Daily Caller. It's so bad. So the one thing that is tried and true that will absolutely help that will that will work nobody wants to do it and that thing is funding independent journalism that's what's what you need to do journalists know how to fight disinformation if they're just left alone to do it because what you do the the way you fight disinfo is by solid transparent journalism so yeah it's gotten worse i mean we're losing an average of two newspapers a day we are in democracy is in such bad shape. I keep hoping for like some kind of miraculous turnaround, but honestly, it's, (laughs) it's super depressing right now. Uh, What do you make of the um, announcement that was made earlier this year by the Biden administration that it would be going to create a disinformation governance board? I thought it was great. I, I that really needed to be done. And Nina Jankowitz is a very, very good, solid, like on top of things, disinformation, like counter disinfo person. The, way that it was presented and the way that it was handled ended up throwing her very much under the bus. And the way it, it was gendered, the way it was used to attack women in general ended up with, I think, probably, you know, the few remaining women, except for me and my coworker, like fleeing completely because it was personal attacks. You know, people were attacking her career. They were attacking, you know, her her background. They were like, well, she doesn't know. She's, she's just a young woman. She doesn't know anything. She's She's been in this in the fact-checking, debunking, counter-disinfo world longer than I have, as far as I know. And she's really, really good. Anyway, I I thought it was great. I do understand why people would be concerned about disinfo, you know, being handled by a government because it would be very easy to turn against, you know, legitimate journalists and fact-checkers and so on. But this board, I don't, I mean, who knows what this board is going to do? I, I, it seems to me that somebody like Nina, who was the one who was tapped, would be very aware of sensitive issues like for the First Amendment, freedom of the press and freedom of speech. So like she just got hit with all these accusations. She never got even a chance to say anything about it. I, I thought that it was a very good idea. I would have liked to have seen it play out. And, you know, the fact that, however, that 
the Biden administration didn't anticipate the bad faith smears and disinfo attacks against the government's board leads me to believe that it probably wouldn't have been handled as well as it could have been. So yeah, it, it's just another woman getting thrown under the bus, you know, thrown to the far right wolves. What I'd like to see, again, is is just a better situation in place for, for more independent journalism, because again, that is the one thing that is going to work. But in the absence of that, I will absolutely settle for a government disinfo board. I do think, though, that it was it was for foreign. I think it was intended for foreign disinformation campaigns for stuff that was outside the country. And it was, I think it was intended to just spotlight them. But it, it doesn't matter what it was intended to do, because now we're not going to get one. So, yeah, I'm mad about that, too. <laughs> I'm mad about everything. I'm so sorry, everybody. <laughs> They needed the governance board to advise their governance board on what was going to, about to happen to them. It, it seemed like the machine rolled into action very quickly to paint it as being like the Ministry of Truth and they were going to be slapping Facebook disinformation stickers onto you in real life and things like that. Yeah, that's exactly and, and that's that is the the true strength of the disinfo machine. The the English language and the Spanish language and I, I those are the two that I I can watch. Those are the two that I'm able to watch. So I, I can't really speak for any other languages, but the English and Spanish language disinfo machines are incredibly fast, very well coordinated. They're all in like DM rooms and Facebook groups and Slack chats together and they swing into action immediately. And they they you can tell the messaging is coordinated and it drives me crazy because it's so obviously coordinated it's it's so uh but but now we we all get to deal with it like like it's real right but yeah it was astonishing how fast it that particular thing swung into action i actually heard the disinfo about it before i even heard about the governance board and i'm pretty on top of disinfo stuff that's how like fast and smooth they were and i was like oh god if they're complaining about this it's got to be a good thing Have you ever thought of uh, switching sides, Brooke? You could produce some very, you know, effective disinformation yourself if you were uh, given the opportunity. I imagine. Oh, I'm. I, I think I'd be really good at it. But then I'd have to hang around disinformation purveyors, and those people have terrible hygiene. They smell so bad. I want nothing to do with them. All those right wing freaks do not shower. Well, speaking of far right blogs and, and Facebook and um, their ability to insert themselves into the discourse and, and supposedly fact check. I suppose the other thing is that, you know, in the United States you've got something like Fox News, yeah. which um, may not be the most reliable of uh, sources. But in Australia we've had um, calls for the government to institute an inquiry into the effects of uh, Murdoch's media empire on Australian politics. Can you talk a little bit about Fox and other major media and its and their uh, role in perpetuating disinformation? Oh, sure. Well, Fox – so – I have a terrible dichotomy with Fox because their international reporters, some of them are really good. Some of their national reporters are decent, but their international reporting team that's that's outside the sort of Death Star is is solid. And when I say solid, I mean like you, they're credible, reliable, good journalists. I, I use that term a lot and it makes it sound like they're just like dense like stars or something. But they're they're, you know, they're they're good, credible journalists. But then, but then there's like the, the talk show hosts. They are utterly corrosive. It's disgusting. They get so much time. They can say whatever they want. And the stuff that they say is loathsome. And what they're doing, and they've been doing this for years, is it's this pattern that goes like this. There's these fringe sites that say, you know, absolutely absurd stuff. And usually it boils down to, you know, the Jews did it. So, you know, that's, kind of like the basis of all the 
disinfo, all the propaganda, all the weaponized narratives, it all seems to boil down to the Jews did it, which is really great because I found out my family was Jewish in 2017 and it's just been amazing ever since. (laughs) I'm responsible for everything and I'm in the media. So, you know, so this, this corrosive stuff, you know, it washes around on these disgusting sites like Aikun or 4chan or, you know, the, uh, I can't remember, the Donald Trump Reddit, the Donald on Reddit, you know, those, those places, a lot of those places are now defunct, but there's other places like them, you know, there's Rumble and Gab and so on. And they, they just say the most disgusting stuff, right? They, they have these elaborate disinformation campaigns that build on these decades old, sometimes centuries old weaponized disinfo campaigns that are proven to work, that are proven to get people upset. So they wash around all these fringe sites. Then they get slightly laundered by uh, slightly less fringe sites that are still very toxic, like OANN or The Daily Caller or, uh, I don't know, you know, any one of those twerps. And so it just kind of gets slightly laundered, slightly laundered, slightly laundered. And then it goes on to Fox News from the mouths of some of those talk show hosts. And because they're getting it from a you know, a laundered source. If you go to try to like, if you, if you're not like, you know, very apprised of how these people work and you go to look up what they're saying, you'll find quote proof. It's this whole entirely closed info info sphere that keeps people trapped in this mentality, you know, and, and they also add in all this emotional language. They add in, you know, all this incitement to violence. They sneer at the idea of human rights. They degrade these sorts of things. And this goes on and on for hours every single night. It's, it's toxic, corrosive propaganda. I don't know if you've watched any of it. I, I find it really difficult to, uh, to watch any of it because it's so performative and so corrosive that uh, I, I get through about 30 seconds. I'm like, you know, I'll just read a transcript, you know? <laughs> so it's, and it's so bad and, and what it's doing too. I mean, there, there are the, there's the white supremacists, there's the bootlickers, you know, there's the, the usual people who will buy into this no matter what. But then there's also people who are very old. There's people who have, you know, uh, mental illness. There's people who are compromised in some way and they're getting, they're vulnerable. They're, and, and they're getting hit with this messaging as well. And they have no defense against it. They, they, they don't really, you know, they have no, well, they're vulnerable to that type of messaging and it sucks them in. And so it's, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've seen it as well. These, these folks who's, personalities completely change within within a matter of months and it's i don't i can't speak to the personality change entirely because i'm not a psychologist but at least some of it is definitely to do with this unmooring of people from everyday reality and that's what fox news oann the gateway pundit social media you know being filled with all these toxic bots and so on that's that's what they're doing and so it's it's making it's what it's doing is directing violence into political ends. So it's, it's encouraging violent people to be violent and then directing that violence. It's super, super dangerous, especially here where we have almost no safety net or recourse at the moment. Currently, there's a Senate inquiry into the events of January 6th and a lot of discussion about the role that disinformation played in, I guess, propelling people to participate. What do you make of the situation with regards to January 6th? Is this an example of the, I guess, perils of disinformation? And, and do you think that the, the committee's hearings can uh, cut through and perhaps you know, combat some of this disinfo? I certainly hope so. What they're doing is what should have been done by, by journalists all along. It's really, really good. And yeah, so 
the the January 6 hearings, I've been watching all of them, of course, and their conclusions are really validating. So I don't know how, whether I where whether my work is showing up in the January 6 hearings at all. I can say that a lot of it matches a lot of the work that I was doing at that time. Um, throughout 2020, I was doing my best to reach out to anybody who would listen to me in government and any position of authority, any position of influence, I was giving them all the information I had because I thought that there was a, an attack that was being planned on. I thought it was going to be the White House, actually. I was wrong about it. I, I thought it was going to be the White House in November 2020. I Then I thought it was going to be in mid-December. So I I was wrong about the place and I was wrong about the time, but I thought that it well, I knew. I mean, I had I had all this this evidence that uh, uh, an attack was being fomented. I was not the only one who was doing this. There were many, many, many of us who were deeply worried, who were organizing these these plans that were being made right out in the open and sending them to the FBI, sending them to you know law enforcement that didn't seem like it was completely co opted and so on. And it's really, really validating to see that somebody actually was listening to us. It's very validating that perhaps there is a possibility that there is going to be some kind of repercussions because that's what's going to stop these people. That's the only thing that stops these people. And by these people, I mean uh, anybody grabbing up power, any fascist, any authoritarian, these people are stopped by consequences. That is the only thing that stops them. Consequences and transparency. And one follows the other. And we need to see more of that. And so when, when you see like the, the, this, these hearings and then you see this enormous response, it's, it's great. Um, I'm trying not to put any hope in anything because, you know, everything's been really depressing. And every time I hope for something, it's just it's more depressing. And I'm like, oh, well, OK, well, <laughs> time for a beer. Uh, but, you know, these hearings are so powerful and they seem to have teeth. Like people are actually seeing legal repercussions from them that I, they are pretty much the only thing giving me hope right now. And I'm just like, oh, my God, our democracy is so close to failing. We have if, if there aren't like serious repercussions from this, then that's going to be it. But if there are, it could make things a lot better. I'm really hoping for a dramatic, miraculous turnaround to the for the greater good. I mean, I'm still see I'm hoping, damn it. But by God, it'll be really satisfying if it does happen. So yeah, I do think that the hearings are good. I, I think that really in a in a much better world, we would have had journalists doing this sort of thing, this this sort of like in depth journalism. But that would be a world that's not, you know, that, or rather a, in a country that's not losing two newspapers a day. That would be in a country that doesn't have, you know, I think an eighth, you know, of, of the journalists it had working just 15 years ago. I'm like one of the few journalists who's managed to hang on to her damn job or to a damn job over the last, you know, 15 years. I, it's, it's, it's terrible. So my short answer is, yeah, I think they are potentially very good. I support them entirely. I see what I think might be some of my work in them. And even if it's not my work, it's the work I did. So I'm like, yes, yes, that's right. You're looking in the places I wanted you to see. <laughs> so it's it's very cool. I don't want to ask too pointed a question just when you've briefly gotten your hopes up, but uh, it seems like the Republican Party in the United States has been completely captured <laughs> by oh, yeah. Christian nationalists. You have this... QAnon element, which is completely unmoored from reality. Is, it, is there a road back for these people? No, no. And there shouldn't be, honestly. They should all be removed from power and go down. So QAnon is just a 
warmed over, slightly modern version of the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. It's a blood, li- blood libel, anti-Semitic narrative. So anybody who is pushing that needs to be barred from power. If, if I had my way, I would have removed all these people from power. But of course, I don't have my way. That I mean, if you're a lawmaker and you're pushing an anti-Semitic you know, line, you're telling everybody that you are not capable of governing, of, of, of adequately representing your constituents. Those people are lost. I, I don't care what happens to them. I just don't think what, they should be in power. Uh, I, I mean, I don't care about them as people. I think that they should suffer consequences and be out of power is what I'm trying to say. Other than that, I don't really care. I don't care about their mindset. I don't care if they come back from their conspiracy theories or not. I don't care about you know their, their friends. I, I don't care. They have done too much damage for me to want to care. The Republican Party, as far as I'm concerned, is not viable. Uh, I don't know if people are going to be catching up with me in time for, you know, for us to not all die in the atmosphere being on fire. <laughs> no, oh, no, I'm sorry. It's just been a long week. But yeah, you, you, you can ask me pointed questions if you want, by the way. I'm on board. They are, with a couple of exceptions, and those exceptions are on the January 6th committee, that entire party is lost. These these weaponized narratives that they're pushing, there's no excuse. I mean, these narratives, the ones that they have uh, have decided to start pushing, these are all old Kremlin narratives that are proven to work. Like they were written, you know, in the 80s, 70s, 60s by like the doctor's plot, for example. There was a there was a weaponized conspiracy theory that was used to great effect by Stalin saying that doctors needed to take they needed to kill one out of every 10 patients because they were Jewish and they called it a Jewish tithe. And Stalin also said that doctors who were, again, in, in Russia at that time were mostly Jewish, that they wanted to poison him, that they wanted to poison their patients and that they were doing it with needles, right? So this ended up, and he was going to put them all on trial. He ended up dying too soon to do it. But this, this conspiracy theory ended up causing thousands of people to, to be forced out of their homes. People got killed over it. And this was in the 50s. So you know it works, right? We are seeing that exact same narrative, that same narrative, exactly. It is the same keywords, the same stories, the same everything. The only thing that's not quite in there is like, they haven't talked about the Jewish tithing yet, which I'm sure they're going to get to at some point. And it's being directed at high profile doctors and they, they're sort of downplaying the anti-Semitism, but you know, of course they always do. But it's the same exact narrative. If you just go look at the doctor's plot, you'll see what I mean. So anybody who's pushing these these, you know, 1950s, like Kremlin lines or, or any sort of line that has a history of being used. And by the way, that that doctor's plot line was also used to great effect in the 1980s in, I believe, East African countries around the around HIV. They were saying that uh, HIV and AIDS was being carried by American doctors in vaccines and uh, things like that. Like, if you look at the history of these um, disinformation campaigns and see how close they are, how similar they are, and the, how these narratives have just been co-opted and copied over the years, it becomes very clear very quickly that these are weaponized and being deployed as weapons to literally to, to hurt people. So you see this, once again, you see Dr. Fauci, for example, being accused of um, pushing vaccines because he wants to kill people because they're trying to depopulate the country for God's sake. But the, by the way, the population control maniacs who are actually trying to do this are the ones in the Republican Party. They are part of the Tanton Network, which I found out all about when I was working on the border. And I didn't realize they were going to be brought into the federal government en masse. En masse. And anyway, 
So yeah, I mean, no, there's, there's, they should not have any positions of power of authority. They should be out of power completely. Nobody who is pushing these sorts of lines should be in power. They are lost. I have no hope for them. I, and I don't care what happens to them as long as they suffer consequences. My position is regarded largely as being a bit extreme, but um, I'm sure people will come, come around to my way of thinking, you know, eventually. The Republicans may be a, a lost cause, perhaps, but uh, some have argued that we've actually entered into a, a post-truth age oh. in which uh, questions of truth or fiction are, you know, of little relevance to affairs of state and so on. Do you think the situation is irretrievable? No, no, there's always room for truth. People who say that, they're just too lazy to keep fact-checking. They're tired and burned out. I shouldn't call them lazy. But that's that's what giving up looks like. That's what handing over the keys to the assholes looks like. You don't freaking give in to bullies. You fight bullies. You get down in the gutter and you roll around with them until you win. Because they're bullies. They don't like anything but soft targets. These people are abusers. They are predators. They are the kinds of people who go into classrooms with a gun and kill little kids. They are the kind of people who call themselves police officers and stand outside the classrooms while somebody with a gun is in a classroom killing little kids. Oh, you don't give them power. You don't give them power over what is truth and what is lies. You don't give them power over language. You fight them. So no, we are not in a post-truth era. Truth will always matter. And truth is the only thing that's going to defeat these people permanently. Uh, Brooke, Noam Chomsky once advocated that people undertake courses in intellectual self-defense. How do you recommend we better defend ourselves from disinformation and misinformation? The best way I know how, and, and I say this as somebody who has fallen for a couple herself because over the years because of this, the best thing I can tell you is if something is making you very angry, very sad, or very frightened, um, or or you just want to like mock somebody because of this news story, then check your sources because when you start getting manipulated emotionally, it's very easy to fall for disinformation campaigns. Know yourself. It's really important for all of us to know what our triggers are, to know what we fall for. So my, my thing, <laughs> I've been forced to confront this. My thing is spite and schadenfreude. I love when bad things happen to people I hate. I love it. I will dance around and giggle and, and you know, have the most obscene glee over it. If, if somebody who has done something bad to me or said something bad to me, like loses their job or is professionally humiliated or publicly humiliated, I'm like, ha, 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 ha. which means that if I see a fake story, this is how I've been gotten in the past. If I see a fake story about somebody I hate and I hate a lot of people. So there, there are fake stories about people I hate and something bad has happened to them especially if it's some sort of poetic justice, like they get arrested for something they've done wrong, you know, after being a cop lover forever, or, you know, they go down for, for child porn after accusing everybody around them of being pedophiles. If it's something like that, I will fall for it immediately. Like it's because I want to believe it. I want to believe it. And so I have to guard myself against that. I have to remember when I feel very strong schadenfreude, then I have to like check my sources. Right. And it's, it, it sucks. It, it's a real, it's difficult to have to do this. It's uncomfortable. But if you are motivated by fear, anger, rage, anything, whatever motivates you, whatever makes you feel 
you know, like most compelled by something, you have to just look at that and be honest with yourself about it. And that really goes a long way. You know, it's not perfect, because sometimes it's easy to rationalize, you know, like, oh, well, the, the, the true point here stands, but it's, you just have to value truth. But the other thing you can do is the other thing is also, if you fall for something, acknowledge it, be kind to yourself, but and, and just keep an eye out for it. Don't 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 get down on yourself and, uh, you know, just like beat yourself up over it because people always fall for it. Disinformation is made to be believed, right? So it's, it's, it's not a character flaw. I see a lot of people and I see a lot of debunkers falling into this too, where it's like, if somebody falls for a line of, of some sort, you know, they'll get jumped all over, like, as though it's it's just this massive character flaw. And like, we're all tired. Everybody's exhausted. We're all beaten down. You know, we've been jerked around for many years. This is everybody on the planet, by the way. I'm not just talking about Americans. You know, we are all so tired. We're living in a, you know, climate change proscribed world where our leaders, for the most part, seem to just have their thumbs up their butts. Sorry. <laughs> um, and it's it's terrifying and awful. And, you know, so in a situation like this, it's it's often difficult to know what to believe. And it's very easy to make choices or to pass things on based on emotion. But just know yourself, know your motivators, know your triggers, and your emotional triggers, and kind of go from there. There, there are tons of things that will infuriate you anyway. But you can usually tell when something is trying to. And it's usually those emotions because those are the ones that kind of like penetrate into your lizard brain, right? They, they bypass your, your frontal lobes or wherever your, I don't know, it is kept and just kind of like go right into the place where you just want to react to it. So that, that goes a long way. And then the other thing you can do is support journalism. One of the things that I've, and, and I mean like donating, but I also mean like supporting them as in, you know, being interactive with journalists, so, like bringing attention to journalists that you find particularly credible, you know, making sure that you elevate their stories. And don't be afraid to criticize journalists and politicians publicly. I mean, we've got this apparatus on social media for doing so. If they screw something up, go tell them they screwed something up. They, they'll hate it, but it, it, you know, it, it also works, at least in a marginally, nominally democratic society. Um, and and then the other thing that I've found to be very effective is if you have a couple of friends, you know, just like two or three like-minded friends who want to fight disinformation with you, like want to fight a particular narrative on social media or or off, just have them, you know, work on messaging with them. That's that's what the far right does, you know, to, to push their lies. If you work on that sort of thing, a coordinated messaging campaign with just a couple of friends, it, it actually can stop these narratives in their tracks sometimes. Not always but sometimes. And then the other thing is, if you're a journalist or a debunker, it's really, really good if you can get out in front of a, a disinfo narrative and just say like, oh, okay, so they're talking about anti-vaccine narratives again. Well, this references the doctor's plot. This references the AIDS crisis. This references that blood libel. And here's how they cobbled them all together. This is why it's bullshit. And if you do that, if you can get out in front and inoculate people against disinformation campaigns, it can be extraordinarily effective. You'll get a lot of death threats, but it's still extraordinarily effective. Um, I get death threats all the time. So it's like, at this point, I'm just like, yeah, you know, they keep missing. <laughs> You've been inoculated against them. <laughs> yes, I've been inoculated. And um, so the, the, those are things, those are the fairly simple things that can be done. But what also needs to be done, though, is, is public editors, 
journalists and politicians need to be heavily, heavily pressured to focus on disinformation because otherwise they'll skate because they don't understand it because it's hard because it's complicated and because it's fuzzy, you know, because you look really partisan sometimes when you're debunking stuff. And, and a lot of journalists are allergic to, to looking partisan and a lot of politicians are, you know, thin skinned <laughs> pains. And, uh, but, but it's for that reason, it's, even more imperative to pressure them publicly, privately, any way that you can to be more on top of disinformation narratives and campaigns. A, a little bit of effort, public effort really, really goes a long way. And here in the United States, I advise people to call newsrooms politely and say, you know, I really want you to, to focus on this because you, you kind of screwed this up. <laughs> I don't know how well that might work elsewhere, but uh, it's very effective here. So I recommend it. And uh that's that's it. Support journalism, you know, work with trusted groups of friends and um, know yourself and your own emotional triggers. And I think that that's kind of where we're at. And, you know, fight, fight these white supremacists and don't be afraid to uh, tell, tell people, you know, you know, your friends and so on. If they're pushing, they're pushing lies, call them out for it. I mean, you could be nice about it, but but say, you know, this person that you're talking to or this, this topic that you're talking about isn't true. You know, like that kind of one-on-one -on -one pressure. I've, I've heard that that can help. I, I'm really bad at it personally. <laughs> I just start screaming at people, <laughs> but I've heard it can really be helpful. <laughs> Sorry. I, I must recommend it. I just can't tell you about its efficacy because my bedside manner, so to speak, is just dreadful. <laughs> so I write instead. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, if people want to find you on Twitter, you are at Brooklyn Marie, and the website, of course, is truthorfiction.com. Thanks for coming on. Ah, thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, Andy, that's our show. We'll be back next week. See you then. No friend I know
online and in cinema. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival will be running online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July. Canvassing the world's best docos from South by Southwest, Tribeca and Hot Docs, as well as the best Australian content. Check out the lineup and book today at mdff.org.au or cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Thank you.